Welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place for students looking for the informed simplicity on the far side of complexity. Today I have uh, one of my few repeat guests, only, only the best get to come back to this show. <laughs> I have Dr. Bonnie Kaplan, who um, has written an incredible book called The Better Brain, and it's all about the impact of nutrition on mental health issues. I am really excited. I had her on, I think it was three years ago now that we last talked, and you're, and you're back and uh, I'm ready for, for round two. So look, for people who haven't heard that first episode, just give us an overview of uh, your research and what it says about the connection between mental health issues and nutrition. So basically chapters two through 10 of the book. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that you want. You summarize that to a soundbite. No, just please. a little soundbite, right. So, um, in a way, this uh, this illustrates why we wrote the book, Jordan. Um, there are so many books out there. Uh, just a little preliminary comment here: so many yeah. books on nutrition and health that people have said, "Why did you write another one?" But of course, the vast majority are on nutrition and physical health. But now, in the last couple of years, there are more and more on nutrition and brain health. So again, why would we write a book? Well, it's because we feel like um, every book that we have read out there on even on the narrow area of nutrition and brain health really focuses on just telling people how to eat. And that's an important message, but you don't need more than one book to do it. And no one has been presenting um, and, and none are written by researchers who are talking about the scientific world to the general public and nobody's saying why we should eat that way. And I teach some of this stuff to kids down to the level of sixth grade. And I know that it's fully comprehensible for anybody to understand that what we put in our mouth affects our mental health. And the literature is vast. So that's kind of why we wrote it. Now, what does it all say? Well, let's see. <laughs> How do I summarize it? It says that um, our brain is a very greedy little organ. When we are eating, we are mostly eating to feed our brain because, you know, it's only a, a two to three pounds, but it consumes and think about most people weigh more than say 130, say pounds, 150 pounds. Um, so it's a tiny little proportion of our body and yet it's absorbing 20 to 50% of the nutrients that we consume. How much percent? It, between it, the estimates are between 20 and 40 or 20 and 50 percent. Wow. Yeah. And actually, since that kind of blows you away, I'll give you, you one other um, statistic. And I think your listeners might be able to visualize this. I want you to picture a quart of, well, I'm going to say blood. You can make up milk or water, whatever, but picture a quart holding liquid. Okay. And then picture your little tiny brain, which will fit in both of your hands. An entire quart of blood goes through your brain every 60 seconds that you're alive. So that's a huge proportion. We only have about six quarts of brain in our bodies. So like a sixth of your blood supply is feeding this little like 1% of your body. Why is that? And it's because our brain is the most metabolically active and demanding organ. And yet, when you talk to 99% of the people, what do they say? Oh, you have to have 
a good diet for your bones and your muscles. Now, I'm not saying that's not true, but we should be talking about our greedy little brains and what they need. You know, one of the things that always hits me when I talk with you is how um, what you're saying is like, at least for me, it's like the, the missing piece, right? So like one of the big ideas right now is um, attachment theory. Mm. Attachment theory in, in, in psychology, basically one of the implications of that is, is that the humans are born very, very young. Mm. We're actually born sort of premature because yeah. our brains are too big to escape from the canal. Yeah. Right. And it's like, oh yeah, of course, you have to feed that thing. Like it's such a massive brain that we have that allows us to do things that no other animal can, can even think of doing. But that means you have to feed it. Exactly. That's, I love, that, yeah. yeah, I love what you say, the missing piece. Actually, it's missing to our generation. Well, I'm a different generation than you, my older generation and your generation. But, you know, our ancestors knew this because you can go back in the literature and we give a little bit of the history in the book, not, not a lot, but, um, you know, a century or two ago, they knew that nutrition was the foundation of, of resilience, including mental resilience. In 1910, um, the, the book used by homesteaders on the prairies said um, that the, if somebody is exhibiting mental health problems, you got to feed them better. That was in 1910. And then psychiatric drugs came along and people forgot about the importance of nutrition and factory farming came along and they stopped paying attention to what they were eating. And, and now we can show, and, and this goes back to your first question, which of course I haven't answered yet, but um, it's been shown, the public doesn't know it, but there is really good scientific research all around the world showing that not having enough of the minerals and vitamins and also essential fatty acids, but especially minerals and vitamins does result in mental disorders. And that the way to solve the problem is to feed our brains better. And if someone is still not uh, getting uh, better enough from improved diet, then they might have an inherited predisposition to need an unusual amount of minerals and vitamins. And that's why um, they might need uh, supplements, nutrient supplements. Wow. Wow. So what is some of the research? I mean, that's sort of an over level and uh, a high level sort of approach. But if you were to get into some of the like, like, yeah, like for depression, anxiety, sort of the, the, you know, some people have called those the common cold of mental health. Right. What does the research say about nutrition and those sort of illnesses? Well, I'll give you a study. Um, it's not the only one, but um, I cite it sometimes because it is in the youngest age group in, of any of the studies. And every time I talk about it, I have to say, what are we doing to our children? This was done in kids who are about 11, 10 to 12 years old. And um, it was done in Eastern Canada. And the scientists went in and evaluated them for nine uh, health behaviors. Now, six of them related to diet. And you can guess what they were. Things like, are you eating your fruits, your vegetables, avoiding you know, processed food, et cetera. The other three are interesting too. They were on exercise and screen time. 
And then they came back two years later, all of these kids had apparently normal mental health, they hadn't been referred for any kind of medical assistance. And they came back two to, I guess, two to three years later, and they looked at the government documents because we have centralized healthcare in Canada, you can do this kind of thing, and asked the question, who got referred to a physician for help with a mental disorder? And what they found was that they could predict who would get referred because they were the ones who were eating the most poorly and generally had, were following the fewest of the nine health behaviors, okay? And not only that, then they did a regression analysis, by the way, I have to throw this in because it relates to our healthcare costs. And they asked the question, well, how much did their, their health behaviors predict? And it was for every additional health behavior, every additional, just one, there was a 15% decrease in the probability of developing a mental health disorder. Think about cutting mental health disorders by 15% next year and what that would do to everybody's healthcare budget or cutting it by, you know, by getting people to do two or three or four more and cutting it by 30% or 45%. That's a huge financial implication. So um, now you asked me to give you an example. Those mental health disorders were a range okay, of, of, they didn't look at whether some diagnoses were more likely than another, but, you know, what are we doing to our kids, Jordan? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I, I have uh, friends every other week here talking about, I got my kid off of this, you know, red dye that, I've got my kid off of processed foods, and it has totally changed their behavior. Oh, good. But what I mostly see, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, is what they then replace it with, right? They'll say, we cut, we cut out hot Cheetos, right? We cut out Doritos. And then we gave them, I don't know, we gave them some vitamin or, you know, a, you know, um, we started giving them iron and, and that, that changed things for them. So they, they tend to flip to like a single nutrient sort of approach. Well, you know how I feel about that. <laughs> That's a, a leading question. You read it. Yeah. So um, I've spent my career, uh, the last 20 years of my career before I retired uh, studying nutrients in pill form. And I know how powerful a broad spectrum micronutrient formula can be. But I know that um, in 2007, my colleagues and I published a review in Psych Bulletin, which, as you know, is very highly read. Uh, we reviewed all the literature on nutrient treatment of mental health disorders in the scientific literature going back to the 1920s. And they were almost all until about 1999. So let's just cut it at the millennium mark there. They were all about single nutrients, people looking for magic bullets. Now, why would people do that? Um, first of all, it makes sense if you remember what was going on like in the early part of the 20th century people were so amazed that you could completely prevent or treat scurvy by giving one nutrient, vitamin C, right? And that was huge because 40% of the sailors who were on the long haul um, explorations in the 18th century died of scurvy, 40% on any ship. So a magic bullet was the way people thought. But you know, now we're dealing with the brain. And, and chapter two in our book explains 
and shows in a diagram why the idea of a magic bullet is ludicrous. You can't fix all of the brain functions with a single nutrient. So forget scurvy. I mean, take your vitamin C, eat your, better yet, eat your oranges. That's what matters uh, or whatever. <laughs> Jordan just held up an orange for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The people listening to this wouldn't know that, but anyway, that's cute. Um, but, but seriously, um, don't look, uh, don't ask me. So many people ask me, you know, which vitamins should I take Bonnie? And I always say all of them and all of the minerals, but by the way, don't do that until you've improved your diet, get rid of ultra processed products, eat whole foods. And, um, well, I could go on and on, but I'm giving you too long an answer. I want to come back to that, um, in just a second, but well, yeah, why don't we just go there? How would you define ultra processed foods? Before I read your book, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have like known. Oh, okay. You, yeah. Because it's like, okay, if, if, if I'm going to do two things, right? The first thing that I'm going to do is not, is to know what not to do. And the thing to not do is it's not eat really processed foods, but how do you know what that is? What that is? Yeah. You just look on the, first of all, if it's in a, it's in a package, it's not outside of a package. So you look on the package and if you don't see a whole bunch of vitamins and minerals, probably it's ultra processed. But I, I should say something about processing because sometimes we humans see things in black and white. I mean, things are good or bad and it ain't that way, not with food. There's a continuum. So of course, an orange, as you just showed me, is a whole food. There's no doubt about that. When you go in the produce section of your grocery store, which is probably not very big compared to the chips and the sodas, et cetera, but go there, you're getting whole foods, everything that you're buying that isn't in a package like that. And then on the far end, the other end of the continuum is stuff like um, the sugary cereals and stuff, which are just carbohydrate. They have the macronutrients, they have um, carbohydrates. They, uh, some of them ultra processed might have protein, fats, probably not the good fats, um, but they don't have vitamins and minerals, not to any significant amount, keeping in mind that there are roughly 30 of them. And if they just say, oh, a good source of vitamin X, whatever it is, you know, that's not enough. It's not giving you what you need. But in between, we have to recognize that after World War II, when mostly maybe after World War I even, some people began um, marketing frozen foods and canned foods that helped diversify our diet. And a lot of frozen and canned foods are really minimally processed. So you can buy a jar of applesauce and okay, it's not as good as eating whole apples, but um, the only additives might be a little bit of preservative or a little bit of sometimes citric acid, actually. Um, so it's not that bad. Or frozen peas, you know, they can be very good for you. So some packages are not so terrible, but you do need to take a look at what you're eating. 80% of what's in our grocery stores is ultra processed. I love how in the book um, you said, like, avoid things that are in packages. That makes First of all, that makes it very simple. And then also you said, what you sort of hinted on here was read the label. And if it's something that you can understand, yeah. it's not processed. But if it's some weird, you know, multi-chloric, folic, yada, 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 acid or something, right. you can't die. You're like, no, nah, it's 
that's, that's going to be highly processed. That's right. Julia, my co-author sometimes says that um, for some of the ultra processed foods, you're probably better off just eating the package, <laughs> the cardboard box, at least you're getting some fiber, you know, which is another, we didn't, we didn't have room to cover everything in our book. We didn't talk about that, but you, your gut, your microbiome needs healthy prebiotic fiber to have healthy bugs in your gut. And uh, that's in the produce section. It's not in the cardboard boxes. Right? Yeah. So look, let's just sort of summarize. So that's a great place to, to, so, to sort of go next, right? The research okay. at this point is very clear. Eating a diet that is full of real foods improves mental health. You want to avoid single magic bullet sort of thinking and get a broad spectrum. And then also, if you're, if you're going to avoid something, avoid ultra processed foods, right? right? And then you're sort of bumping up against this sort of um, uncharted territory of the human body, right? Anyone who's been awake for the past decade knows that like the gut is like the newest thing in like health, right? We've like discovered the gut or something. And most people try to take a probiotic if they're yeah. in, this, in this sort of field. But you're really advocating that the research says that prebiotics, there, there's more research on prebiotics there's more, um, I have to be very careful here to distinguish between physical health and mental health, Jordan, okay? I don't know the physical health literature that well. I, my lectures are sometimes entitled Nutrition Above the Neck, okay? Mm. Because it's the brain that I know more about. Um, but the gut is closely linked to the brain, as we know, and, and the gut is where um, those little healthy bugs are hopefully going to be digesting your food and enabling those micronutrients, meaning minerals and vitamins, to get into your bloodstream to go up to your brain. So, you know, we're all connected. Everything's connected. So, but the, the probiotic research, you know, um, probiotics have helped some friends of mine. So I have a good respect for them. Um, I have one friend who found one formulation that really prevents indigestion, if I can use the general term for her, gassiness, et cetera. Um, I don't know if she eats a healthy diet. She's a social friend. I haven't evaluated her, you know, or watched what she eats. But if you look at the scientific literature, uh, there really is not strong evidence for probiotics helping mental health. But your audience has to understand that if I say a term to you like, oh, we were talking about scurvy, so vitamin C, everybody knows what vitamin C is. It is a single nutrient. Probiotic is a gazillion little critters, hopefully still alive, meaning that they've been packaged well and delivered and shipped to you well, but they are different. There are zillions of different species in there. I keep saying zillions because I don't want to bore you with numbers. <laughs> I probably don't remember them right. And it's one product has more of one spe species and another one has a different combination and they have different quantities. And so you look at all the studies on probiotics and they're all using different combinations. So all we can say right now is that probiotics um, there's not a lot of positive evidence. There's a little better evidence that eating prebiotics um, helps, but, but that overlaps with the Mediterranean diet, you see, because the Mediterranean diet improves well, your- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow you down because I don't think most people know the difference between a probiotic and a prebiotic. Oh, even. thank you. Probiotic 
is the actual healthy bugs that we want in our gut, okay? We don't even know how many of them survive digestion when we swallow them in pill form and how many really are able to take up residence in our gut. But we do, a lot of people take probiotics and feel better because they are, they are swallowing healthy bugs and trying to create better bugs in their guts. Prebiotic is the food, the fiber, fibrous food that healthy bugs like to eat. So when you're eating the prebiotics, you're feeding the healthy bugs and enabling them to grow stronger and dominate over the unhealthy ones, which we, we tend to help. I keep saying the word bugs just so that your audience understands the majority of our microbiome is bacterial, but there are other kinds of microorganisms there. So that's why I'm just saying bugs. Yeah. So did that help? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the gut is full of, you know, micro, micro, um, organisms, organisms. Yeah. And what people talk, think about as prebiotics is the food that those organisms eat, whereas probiotics is trying to add in more of those organisms. That's right. And there are more of them than there are of us, which is a very strange concept, but there is more, there is a larger amount of DNA, a larger number of organisms, um, which are not human cells than there are human cells. And there are also, just so you know, they're not just in our gut. We have um, such specialized community, if we're healthy, specialized communities of microorganisms. They're in our mouth where digestion starts, which is why we need to slow down and chew our food because our saliva is mixing the healthy organisms into, I'm, I'm not a slow eater myself. I have to always say, slow down, chew more. Um, and they're so specialized, for example, there's one uh, community above the gum line and a different one below the gum line. There are uh, specialized communities that live in our eyebrows and our eyelashes all over our bodies. It's amazing, our skin. Um, there's also a microbiome in the earth. And we have a half a chapter on the microbiome of the soil. All of these organ organisms are so important for our health. Yeah, that's wild. It is wild to think of that, isn't it? It's wild. So we, we talked about prebiotics. We talked about probiotics. We talked about the, the microbiome, the importance of getting a broad spectrum of um, nutrients in your in your diet. Talk a little bit more about the, like what is a micronutrient? You talk about the difference between micronutrients, multinutrients, yeah. Like these are the things that we eat food to, to like get, but like, what are they? Yeah. Um, I, I wish the terminology were easier to keep straight, but it is what it is. So macro means big. So macronutrients, and there's pretty universal acceptance of this term, are the big categories that are on uh, the labels of most of our food, which is carbohydrates, protein, fats. Okay. That's, those are the macronutrients. But we are most concerned for mental health about, we tend to get plenty of carbs and protein and maybe not the right fats, but they're not a big issue. It's the micronutrients that we think people are, are really short of. We know they are. Actually, I, I want to give you a statistic on that. Well, I'll give it to you right now. 
help me remember where I am in, yeah. in that train of thought, okay? Um, there is very good evidence from Canada and the US that half of what our current society is putting in their mouths and calling food is in fact ultra processed stuff, which means they're choosing to cut back on their um, mineral and vitamin intake by 50% compared to our ancestors. I mean, we are making that choice when we're buying ultra processed products. So the reason that that's so shocking to me, and we put this in the book because it should be well known, 70 years ago, the University of Minnesota showed that a 50% cut in micronutrient intake resulted in depression, anxiety, ADHD, et cetera. They showed it in a group of healthy young men and over the course of six months. Now they were also um, cut back by 50% of their caloric intake, but I don't think anybody thinks that that's the main factor, right? And given the current literature, there are so many studies showing that the micronutrients are what matter. So if there are roughly 30 micronutrients that we need and you cut them by half, then you are going to have, it's totally predictable. The outcome of this social experiment was predictable 70 years ago that we would end up with a big increase in depression, anxiety, and attention problems and some psychosis. Now back to what a micronutrient is. There, the term is, uh, this one is not quite as universally used, but um, especially when you go into agriculture, they have slightly different terminology. But the way we use it consistently in human nutrition research is that a micronutrient is a mineral or a vitamin. Sometimes omega-3 fatty acids, but because omega-3 fatty acids are such a large, we need that in much larger quantity, uh, sometimes we kind of keep it in its own category. So we needed to use a term in the book um, that would be consistent. And so we talk about broad spectrum micronutrient formulas as having all 30 roughly minerals and vitamins. We talk about ultra processed food as being not having the micronutrients. Does that help? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's all those vitamins and minerals. It's not necessarily yes. the protein, the carbs and the, and the, um, the fats, yeah, right. You know, it's all those other things. Yeah. Um. So let's talk about the omegas. Like, sure. how does that fit into all of this? Right. We know Very, that, yeah. that out of fish, most of us don't eat fish nearly as much as, as we need to. How does that impact our? Uh, that's a real problem, especially for children. Um, the omega threes are are they're important in lots of places, but they're especially important in building cell walls. So when we have our little babies and we're wanting their brains to be built, um, they have to consume a very high fat diet and we want it to be, you know, mother's milk and omega-3s, et cetera, as much as possible. Um, so that's one area. But even throughout the lifespan, omega-3s are very important for brain function and heart function. Um, and, and yet the studies that, you know, typical... Uh, modern human thinking. So what did the scientists do? They went off and they got huge grants to study the treatment of depression with omega-3s. And guess what? It doesn't solve, it doesn't really resolve most depression. It has a minor effect because it's a single nutrient. We have to get them all together. 
Now you mentioned fish. Should we talk about the Mediterranean type of diet? Let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. This is a real problem, especially, I mean, when we understand it, we will protect our oceans better, I think. Because, because this is really what to, what to eat, right? What to what, eat. What not to eat. We talked about how to, what the building blocks of this, of this is that our brains need, which is the, the micronutrients. Now let's talk about how do you eat? How do you eat? The very first step in, in our uh, in chapter 12 of our book, we say it's as easy as one, two, three. We give our vision of tomorrow and it involves both prevention and treatment of mental disorders. But absolutely the first step is to eat a whole foods kind of diet. And the Mediterranean diet is one term that's used for it. Sometimes people call it a prudent diet in the research. It's just, you know, the healthy stuff. So what does that consist of? Absolutely fruits and vegetables every day. And uh, North Americans tend to be a little bit better on their fruits. So to your audience, I would say, improve your intake of vegetables. And you know, the old thing about the plate, half your plate should be veg vegetables and fruit. Excuse me. Um, you should have fish a couple times a week. And some people don't eat any fish, so they should be taking omega-3 supplements. And if you start talking about omega-3 supplements, then you get into the whole issue of what kind of fish, what kind of, should it be krill? Should we not be going to the, you know, are we hurting the oceans? I don't have any simple answers to that. Um, you just need to try to eat fish a couple times a week, okay? Um, Meat, if you're not a vegetarian, you can eat a Mediterranean diet with meat or without, you know, but uh, if you're going to eat meat, try to eat healthy meat. Now, what do I mean by healthy meat? Well, preferably without all the saturated fats, you know, we learned long ago, we should be taking the skin off our chicken when we eat it and so forth. But my co-author, Julia, Julia Rutledge lives in New Zealand where they can get um, beef and, and lamb that has not been factory farmed very readily without a big extra cost. Here in North America, it's harder to do. And so you're getting in your meat, you're often getting, you know, people who tell me they feel so much better without eating meat in North America. Uh, and not everybody does. You know, I, I live in beef country up here in Alberta, and I know there's a lot of good beef around. But sometimes I think they're feeling better might maybe is because they're not being exposed to the antibiotics and hormones and stuff, you know, that comes with factory farming. So we don't, we don't have all the answers on that, but it's better to decrease your meat if you're not sure about that, I think. Um, but I'm, I mean, I'm not a vegetarian. I think it's, it's possible to have a very healthy diet with some meat, um, dairy and eggs and cheese and so forth. Your grains, this is a really important one. Stop eating white flour. You know, eat healthy whole grain bread, healthy whole grain um, whenever you can, if you're eating your carbs. Why not? What's, what's wrong with the, with the white? The white flour, it's, you know, as with everything, um, you've actually raised a huge issue and you don't realize it, Jordan. Don't so, realize no. <laughs> so, <laughs> I will do a little digression here if you help me remember where I was with the Mediterranean diet and I'll come back to it. Sometimes um, we make uh, attributions which are not justified. So there are studies coming out now showing that if you get rid of ultra processed food, um, you have stronger muscles and bones, for example. And I look at that and think, well, 
they didn't prove that it was the ultra processed food that was hurting muscles and bones. What did people replace ultra processed food with? Oh, they were probably eating more healthy food. So you have to be careful what you attribute it to. So um, I did lose my train of thought. What did you ask that led me to? <laughs> I was asking what was wrong with white flour. White flour, thank you. So there may be nothing wrong with white flour if you're also eating a lot, getting all your nutrients in everything else. But it does tend to, you know, people who snack on um, uh, muffins, you know, with white, you know, I don't know, cupcakes or something, they're, they're probably not there. They could be instead getting nutrients. Okay. The it's, it's what you're replacing it with. Why not snack on nuts and seeds, a very important part of a Mediterranean diet. And then you're getting more fiber and you're getting, and that you're getting more fiber also for your gut in whole grains. So it's every, every bite that you put in your mouth is an opportunity to provide what your brain and body need or not. That's really what it boils down to. I mean, it, I think this is something that's coming out in the interview, which was in your book, but I don't think it hit me. Just the fact that everybody is a trade-off. Yes. Your brain needs so much energy. You wanna be making sure that you're giving it what it really needs. I'm writing that down. Every bite is a trade-off. That's, that's a very good way to look at it. You're making a choice with every bite you take. And I'm not saying that I don't still eat my chocolate chip cookies occasionally. I, I recommend people follow the 80-20 rule. Um, if you're really feeding your brain and body what it needs 80%, 90% of the time, have a treat occasionally and don't beat yourself up about it. So back to, the, back Mediterranean to the Mediterranean diet, diet. Yeah. because so far we've covered everything except, let's see, well, the oils that you eat, try to make them olive oil because then you're getting omega-3s and you're providing healthy stuff for your brain and body. Um, more than, I'm not saying you should never use other kinds of vegetable oils, but try to use olive oil when you can. And then um, the last category I want to mention is the most important for dispelling an enormous myth. Some of your audience is listening there um, and saying, my, if you're a psychologist, my clients can't afford to eat a Mediterranean diet. Um, and this is a myth. And it's been shown in research that you save money if you eat a Mediterranean diet, but it's, you're not eating lobster and steak every week, right? You're eating from this last category. It's the dried beans and legumes. Now, People don't, are not being taught to cook, but you, you could serve, you know, beans and legumes every night and probably feed your family on $10 a week, but I'm not recommending it. It would get a little much. Okay. But the, um, the, the way to do that is first, we teach this in the book. We have a whole chapter with recipes and we teach how to buy your beans and legumes in the dried form and soak them overnight. And people say, oh, that's too much work. Well, excuse me, but they're sitting in a pot of water while you're sleeping. How is that making you, that's not a lot of work, you're sleeping. However, the next day you do have to cook them for a couple hours uh, or use an Instapot or a pressure cooker, right? So that might be too much for some people. 
Um, but lentils, green lentils, you don't have to do that too. You just rinse them off and you cook them and you have a dinner in 30 minutes. And just so that your audience knows, you can go to Google, put in the words recipe green lentils, for example, and in less than one second, you'll have several million recipes. Same thing. I'm not exaggerating because I've done this more than you can possibly use in a lifetime. Same thing with uh, kidney beans or white beans. So you can get an infinite number of recipes and you can modify them. We give you a few in the book, not that many, but, um, and, and last but not least, you can also buy them in cans. And if you're watching your sodium intake, um, then you can put them in a colander and rinse them off and you get rid of the salt. And that's still very inexpensive, okay? So that is where the magic is, is, in that category of foods for the Mediterranean diet. And we have people who have proven that again and again with their clients. They have them keep track. You know, it's expensive to buy McDonald's and sodas and chips and that adds up and it doesn't fill you up. Yeah. So there you go. And it's also one of those things where I, I would imagine it's kind of like sleep. You know, people are often like, well, I'm too busy to sleep. But the burden <laughs> on you on a day-to-day basis for not doing it. It's know? huge. Yeah. It's health. It's health. It's health. Your health is your one thing that you can't get back once it's gone. You know, that's, that's the most important thing that you have. It's so, very important. So I want to, there's a few questions everyone's going to ask, right? The first question people are going to ask is, um, what about sugar? everyone says now that sugar is the worst thing for you is there any research on sugar and mental health sugar and i've heard people say that um alzheimer's and maybe some forms of dementia or um type 3 diabetes like is that something that you've heard about read about researched about how does sugar impact your yeah so the um Back in the 1980s, I was doing research on additives and sugar and stuff. And I can tell you that the literature showed then that sugar does not make children hyperactive. If they get hyperactive after eating a lot of sweet treats, it's the artificial ingredients that are with the sugar because sugar actually makes us sleepy. If we just were eating sugar out of a sugar bowl, might get a rush, but then sleepy. But um, Everybody reports, and I I can't review the scientific literature on this very well for you, Jordan, but they report that it is truly addictive. And so it can be very hard if you have adapted to a certain level of sugar, very hard to get off of it. I've just bought two books by Michael Moss, um, who has, uh, the most recent one is called Hooked. And it's about getting hooked on on this stuff. And I haven't had time to read it yet, but I will. Um, Because when people, I I mean, it used to be that the the, um, manufacturers of processed food would put sugar where we knew it, it, it was there. It was in sweets and stuff, right? But now it's like they've gone up and down. I heard him say this on a podcast, like they've gone up and down all the aisles in the grocery store and figured out how to put sugar in everything. There's sugar in meat. If you buy like a box of hamburgers or something that have already been made into patties, they're sweet. I mean, I, there's, I haven't eaten them, but I see the sugar in them and I see anyway. So the idea of adding sugar to meat and adding it to bread uh, beyond what you need for the yeast to rise, et cetera. Um, 
it's appalling. So we really are hooked on sugar very badly. Now, the dementia story to me is a separate story. I don't think that I have seen valid literature to attribute it to sugar, but what I have seen very clearly, including an article in neurology this week, is that the largest contributing factor to, to dementia is a bad diet. Again, I mean, it's the same thing as with mental health. And Martha Claire Morris showed uh, a decrease of something like 50% of dementia signs getting worse in people who went on to a whole foods diet. It's phenomenal. And given that we have no really useful treatment for dementia yet, people have to know this. We have to have more publicity on it. Yeah, I mean, that's such a huge thing. 50%. Mm. Yeah. That's wild. It's wild. Yeah. What about other diets? You know, there are a lot of diets that are big now, like um, keto or mm -hmm. intermittent fasting. People and some people are like, man, once I'm on ketones, I'm so clear. Like, this is great. But right. what have you, what is the, what does the research say? Well, we really struggled with how much of this to include in the book. And we tried to say, okay, we are on mental health. So we really restricted our comments to that. And we evaluated for each one of those specialty diets, the scientific literature. And, you know, there, forget science for a minute. We all know some people who are sensitive to gluten, right? And they feel better and they think more clearly when they get off of gluten. But they're a minority of the people who try gluten. And tons of people say they're gluten, mostly gluten-free. I have a friend who has a, the tiniest bit of gluten and she is sick for the next day, right? Physically sick and can't think clearly. That's gluten sensitivity. So given that too many people are going toward gluten-free food when they, they don't need to. Oh, and by the way, a lot of the gluten-free products are very refined, you know, refined carbs instead of whole grains, right? They have to be rice and stuff. Um, we decided that we would take a whole foods first idea. There's another reason too. Have you known anybody who said, oh, I tried that diet. Diet obviously doesn't affect my health. They get discouraged. So they just throw out the whole idea of food affecting their health. So we thought, what is this, how can we help people the most? And we took the uh, approach of let's get everyone to get rid of the ultra processed stuff, get onto a whole foods diet. Then after you see how much you can achieve from that, if it's not enough, then you might want to try a ketogenic diet. You might want to try a gluten-free diet. Any of these other restrictive, they are restrictive, narrow diets, right? But make it later down the road. Yeah. And really have a whole food, a whole foods diet as your base. That's what right. I'm saying. Yeah. Absolutely. What about supplementation? Oh, well, that's a really hard thing to summarize easily. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> hardball, hardball yeah. questions, you know. How, how many more minutes do I have here, Jordan? Uh, at least three hours. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there are different aspects to the supplement research. We really feel strongly that people should try to clean up their diets first because we know that there's a lot of room for improvement, right? Uh, but our research has shown that even in people who are eating a decent diet, um, that taking micronutrients in pill form, what we tend to call supplements, can benefit their mental health. Um, so the, uh, 
the issue is why that would be. And of course, one possibility is that what we're buying in the produce section of our grocery store is not as nutrient dense as it used to be. And we get into that in the book. But also we know there are individual differences, like the amount of magnesium you need, Jordan, might be different from the amount that my brain needs. Maybe my brain needs more vitamin B6 than yours does for optimal functioning. And we have no way to test that yet. We have no way to test what your brain needs. All we can look at is some serum levels of a few of the nutrients, and they do not really predict response to micronutrients. So what our research has shown is forget the idea of a single nutrient benefiting anybody. Um, you really need to take them together. That's why nature packaged them together, except for vitamin D, which we synthesize when we're in the sunlight, right? Vitamin D is, sometimes I think it shouldn't be called a vitamin, it's a hormone, it's, it's what our body synthesizes. But all the, all the other vitamins are, um, and minerals are what we consume in our food and we have no way of knowing very easily which ones we should take. Fortunately, for almost all of them, if we do consume too much in pill form, then we pee it out, we excrete it. But you can hurt yourself going with massive amounts of some of these things. All of the multi-nutrient formulas that have been studied, and we review those in chapter 11, are what are below, called below tolerable upper levels, they're safe. Okay, so if you take them at the recommended amounts, you're not going to hurt yourself and you're going to get a whole bunch of them together. And what we've shown is um, there are randomized controlled trials. There's a, a new one that's uh, almost in press, but I can't mention it because it's not yet accepted. Um, but it will be the second randomized placebo controlled trial in children with ADHD getting better with a broad spectrum formula. Um, we've, it's been shown in people with uh, depression, with anxiety, explosive rage is where it's at. I'll tell you, people who have real emotional outbursts, emotional dysregulation, that is very sensitive to improving the micronutrient intake uh, with pills. And then there's this other little category of stress. <laughs> <laughs> which is so important during the pandemic that I want to say something about it, okay? If you're not talking about psychiatric disorders, but you're just talking about the ordinary bloke on the street who's under a lot of stress, there is a very good body of literature showing just taking a B-complex after breakfast every day, and I say that because you can't take it on an empty stomach, improves resilience to stressors. And that research comes from all over the world. So um, B vitamins are very important for our resilience to stress. We, te we teach about that in the book, about why that's true. Yeah, wow, okay. So let's bring this home then, all right? With all this information, um, with our knowledge about supplementation, about eating whole foods, about avoiding ultra processed foods. What's sort of the next step for therapists, counselors, social workers? Like, like, where do we take this next? How do we, yeah, what's, what's, what's our first step in taking this stuff to our clients? Um, 
we try to teach clinicians how to raise the issue of diet with their clients because I found that uh, people are reluctant to do it because they think, oh, I don't eat that well either, right? And they feel like they're being condescending or I don't know what. So if you just say to every single client who comes to you first, you know, there's an increasing amount of literature showing or scientific data showing that what we eat influences how we feel. Can we talk about your diet? And then ask them, um, and this is not a, a questionnaire that you score or evaluate, you're not judgmental, but just let's go over how many times you eat fruit in a day or a week. How many times do you eat vegetables in a day or a week? Uh, how about sodas? Um, maybe fish, you know, just get some basics about the diet. And where do you think we could work to improve on it? And by the way, you're welcome to refer them to our book for someone who is a real knowledge seeker because it's written for the general public. But for the mental health clinician, you don't necessarily need a referral to a dietitian to distinguish between ultra processed food and whole foods. Just teaching that to people is very important. You might be in a clinic with multiple clinicians. Maybe you could require a lesson in nutrition before their first appointment. Maybe you could set up cooking classes so that people share, or maybe a, a recipe sharing situation where people could say, um, I'm trying to improve my diet and here are some of the recipes I've found very helpful. Or snack foods people sometimes, or what I, what I could prepare for my children. There are categories you could have your own, your clients be, putting things up on a bulletin board. Um, you could even have them keep track of how much they spend on their diet now for a week and then have them graph how much they spend as they move to a whole foods diet and save money. There are a lot of things that clinicians could do. Yeah, and the biggest thing is just bringing it up. Just having the yeah. conversation first. Have the conversation, yeah. Wow. Okay, look, I want to be respectful of your time. It's a great book. Um, if you had a closing sort of, uh, there's a few more things we need to do, but if you had like okay. a closing sort of message for, okay. for, for people, what would that be? To parents, I would say, feed their brains first. Don't, I'm not saying that children should never be given medication for behavioral problems. It would be stupid to be anti-medication, but it should not be your first step. Feed their brains first, okay? And for yourself, feed your brains first. That's the number one message. Maybe the number two one is in times of stress, and we explain why. We explain the triage theory in the book. Favorite part of the book. It's a what? My favorite part of the book. Honestly. Oh, is it really? Favorite? Uh yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that, yeah. that, that preferentially, you know, you've got, you've got to make sure you have extra nutrition in stressful times. Nutrition is the foundation of your resilience and yeah. we're in a pandemic. Right. right. Yeah. Um, so look, where can people find you, Ms. Kaplan? I have a website and it is my name, except Turns out there are too many Bonnie Kaplan's in the world. 
can't get rid of them. So my website had to put in, I had to put in my middle initial. So it's Bonnie, B-O-N-N-I-E-J, Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N.com. And of course, on my website, you'll learn about the book. There is a book website. If you know it's something you want to order, of course, I always encourage you to go get your local bookstores to buy it um, and order through them just to support the economy. But you certainly can buy it through online, through Amazon or whatever. And it's called The Better Brain is the name of the book. Overcoming Anxiety, Combat Depression and Reduce ADHD with Stress and Nutrition. That's the long subtitle, but yeah. all you need to order the book is our, the book website, go to my website or go to the betterbrain.com. Sorry, the betterbrainbook.com. We had to put the word book in there. People, people are talking about the better brain all the time. Too many books with that name too. Look, yeah. your book I thought was phenomenal. I think the best part about the book, which is underrated. This is the first book that I've read on this topic that is written by scientists. Mm. right and I think you do one of your strengths that is so subtle is you are very honest about what you do know and what you don't know you don't make universal claims in the book but you're very clear about what the research says and to me that is a, a level of credibility right you're not making these broad overarching this will fix everything in your life but you're saying no, no. this is what the research says we know what it does and for a lot of people this is going to change a lot of lives Right. Right. But not everyone, because there is no magic out there. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And and so I want to say thank you for this book. We're going to do a, um, a book giveaway. And so if you leave a review and send it to Jordan, the counselor at gmail.com, you'll get a free copy of the book, The Better Brain. Um, by Bonnie. Every single every single person who does that's going no, to get a free copy. <laughs> and can you put it on could you post it on amazon.com after <laughs> after you've read it <laughs> you know what there's one more thing i want to say yeah. funny thing is you know people have started posting reviews on amazon which is fantastic it really is very helpful but one of the first people to post said gee you didn't you didn't give credit to the importance of social problems family dysfunction child i mean that's not what we wrote about, right? So that's why we didn't. And so I just want your audience to know that these are all very important issues. But of course, if you have an irritable, difficult child, um, and if food could help solve that problem, you might actually improve family functions. So there you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Leave us a review on, on iTunes uh, and we'll get one lucky winner. We'll get a copy of the book. Okay. Uh, Dr. Kaplan, thank you so much. It's so good to talk to you again. Maybe I'll talk to you again before, you know, you write your second book, so. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. All right. Okay, bye now.